Hello, my friend. This is just a quick note before we get into the Pandora's box of this episode. I want to say welcome to Renegade Files Season 3. Our previous episode was a wrap-up of our second year. This is episode 51. It's the first episode of our third year, Season 3. This particular episode is a longer one. It's a deeper dive. We are going to go longer and deeper on some of the shows this season, so I hope you're ready for it. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in, and this episode is for you. I hope you enjoy it. Please take care. Thank you. What's up, time traveler? You've jumped through hyperspace to find Renegade Files, your destination for the exploration of paranormal events, UFOs, cryptids, and conspiracy theories. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, sending out the signal from the Jungle Villa Outpost deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files Episode 51, The Oklahoma City Bombing. On 19 April 1995, two years after the debacle in Waco, Texas, and six years before the events of 9-11, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City was the site of an explosion that left in its thunderous echoes half the structure in rubble, 168 dead, 800 injured, and $700 million in damage. In this episode, we'll go through this event from the beginning to the end while putting in order the things we know based on what the news told us, what those who were there reported, and facts discovered by relevant experts. Who were those involved? Who made the bomb and what was in it? What happened to the building? Why did they do it? And do all of these things add up or not? This is a tragedy that most people never even question. Timothy McVeigh did it. He confessed. He was executed for it. The end. It's one of the unapproachable narratives in recent American history that will instantly get you labeled as a crackpot if you even question a single part of the story. It's been asked and answered in the mainstream docket, and to ask again is to be marginalized. But on this episode of Renegade Files, we will ask. And we will even try to answer a simple question. Is it possible that the Oklahoma City bombing story we have been told is incomplete or wholly inaccurate. Let's find out. Timeline of official information. Before we get into this, I'd like to give you a quick behind-the-scenes note on the production of this broadcast. Working on this episode has been both challenging and rewarding challenging because it's one of those subjects that keeps revealing more information the further you look into it. Each time I thought I was almost done, I'd find another thread or set of circumstances that begged to be included here. Then I'd have to figure out what section within the episode to position that new information, and, well, you can see how that could go. Even so, there weren't multiple instances of my finding contradictory evidence. As complex and deep as this story is, the alternative media coverage on it is remarkably consistent. 
But because it was one of those topics that seems to grow and grow no matter how far you look into it, finalizing and organizing the literal mountains of information here was hard, and it took a long time. I tried to organize all the data in this case into three or four parts, like the official narrative, who was McVeigh, survivors and witnesses, analysis and experts, but all of that information kept wrapping back around on itself and reconnecting to previous sections, so I did away with most of those categories, at least having them as 100% formal segments, and we're just going to dive deep. I mean, basically, I did the best I could considering how big this is. So that's that. But doing this was also, as I said, extremely rewarding. This is the first episode of Renegade Files Season 3, which begins our third year on the podcast airwaves. It's also a deep dive, a long episode, and one that delves into a touchier subject, a more hardcore conspiracy, and a potentially divisive combination of topics. But it could very well be that all of that is by design. McVeigh was cast as a white supremacist in the media, so to question his guilt is to risk being marginalized as the same. But no matter what the legacy media tells us, the story of the Oklahoma City bombing is not a story about race. So then, what is it? The following is a paragraph from the Oxford Study Course's interpretation of one of Plato's most important writings, The Republic wherein Plato described what he saw as the perfect society. From the Oxford translation of Plato's Republic, we read, quote, The ordinary members of the ideal state are, indeed, not meant to think on their feet or make their own judgments. Instead, they are treated like children, being told edifying stories as they are given a simplistic interpretation of the origin of their community. Their sole and only duty as citizens will be to do their duty, that is, to comply by the principle of specialization and toil all their life for the benefit of the guardian state, united around their rulers, but divided into three distinctive classes, productive, military, or philosophical. The citizens of the Republic never mix, as their very constitutive element destines them irrevocably to productive, military, or philosophical activities. Like the prisoners in the cave, the productive class are simply abandoned to their ignorance and false illusions. End quote. Plato wrote that around 375 BC, 2400 years ago. So, telling the productive class, that is the everyday working citizen, simplistic stories that abandon them in their ignorance and false illusions, so they will toil all their life for the benefit of the guardians of the state, is not some new idea. This has been happening since the creation of the very concepts of state and ruling class. You can see glimpses of these simplistic stories anytime you watch a complicated event get very quickly distilled by the media into one or two catchphrases or talking points. Here are a few examples. It was a crazed lone gunman. This was an act of terrorism. No large group of people could keep a secret that big. 
This was a cult leader atrocity. He was the hero. She was the villain, the teacher, the artist, the wanderer, the outcast. We reduce the experiences of life into archetypes so we can communicate quickly and understand easily without the efforts of research and critical thinking. We outsource comprehension and let someone on television tell us what the truth is, what reality is. Not all of us do this, but many of us do, possibly the majority. There's a reason that conspiracy theorist has become a derogatory label in the mainstream media, and that's because you don't have to do deep, exhaustive, complicated research to find inconsistencies and outright lies within most official stories surrounding especially cataclysmic social events in America. All you have to do is look into these stories at all. The slightest glimpse into the facts and connections of a widely trotted out description of some tragic American event reveals, very quickly, more questions than answers, so they don't want you looking into it at all. Just trust their version of it and don't be a crazy conspiracy theorist. Conspiracy thinking is dangerous. Thinking is dangerous. And that's the message we get from the mainstream. So with this in mind, let's get into the news coverage on that day. That morning, witnesses saw two men park a rider truck in front of the building. Shortly before the bombing, two men, Middle Eastern or possibly Hispanic, were seen by witnesses running away from the federal building, getting into a brown pickup truck, and speeding away. Seconds later, an explosion shook the city, and almost immediately, the Oklahoma City Police put out a be-on-the-lookout alert for those two Middle Eastern or Hispanic-looking men wearing blue jogging suits that witnesses had seen fleeing the scene earlier in the brown pickup truck. The news media initially reported that there were two explosions, based on eyewitness testimony, but this version of events quickly vanished from follow-up reports and within 24 hours was never mentioned on the news again. It was then reported that the explosion was from a truck parked in front of the building and a serial number on a twisted axle fragment found 200 feet from the bomb center led investigators to believe that the axle was from a rider rental box truck. Upon the explosion, Oklahoma Noble County Trooper Charlie Hanger was initially called in from patrol to assist in the disaster's aftermath, but he was quickly told by the dispatcher to not report to the scene and instead remain in his patrol area. While driving an empty stretch of highway and less than two hours after the blast, the trooper came upon and passed a speeding yellow car. As he did so, he noticed that the car had no license plate. Once in front of the vehicle, he slowed way down and the yellow car, in turn, passed him. At that point, the trooper turned on his flashing lights and pulled the vehicle over. He called on his loudspeaker for the single occupant driver to exit the vehicle and raise his hands. As the man did so, the officer saw the outline of a handgun in a holster under the man's jacket, and at that same moment, the man, Timothy McVeigh, told the trooper 
that he had a loaded handgun. McVeigh, a 26-year-old Army veteran, was arrested for the first time in his life for carrying a concealed weapon. At this time, McVeigh was not yet connected to the bombing. On the way to the station for booking, Timothy McVeigh said to the state trooper, quote, I bet you're getting me for that thing I heard about on the radio. According to PoliceOne.com, McVeigh would have probably been given a court appearance date and released either the next day or at the latest the day after. But the judge he was to appear before was unavailable because of some family issues, so McVeigh remained in county custody for an additional day. While McVeigh was in custody for the concealed weapons charge, a former co-worker of his from New York submitted a tip to the FBI stating that a man he knew, Timothy McVeigh, had often espoused militant anti-government views and that he was infuriated by the siege of the Branch Davidian compound by federal agents in Waco, Texas, which had ended in a deadly fire two years to the day before the Oklahoma City bombing. When the FBI received this tip, they quickly learned that the Oklahoma police already had Timothy McVeigh in custody. Now, consider right out of the gate here what a series of coincidences this is. A state trooper is called in from his patrol, essentially in the middle of nowhere, to assist in the bombing aftermath. But before he can get downtown, the dispatcher calls him back and essentially says, no, we're good down here where a bomb just killed or injured about a thousand people. You stay out there in your area. Then, as he does so, he just happens to pull over a guy with no prior criminal record because the car was speeding and had no tag, and he arrests him for having an unregistered handgun. The suspect guesses out loud to the policeman that he thinks they're probably getting him for the thing he heard about on the radio. He doesn't say he did it. This almost implies that hearing about it on the radio is the first news of it to him. It isn't conclusive, but to me, this sounds like a classic Patsy realization. Like when Lee Harvey Oswald saw a policeman come into the Dallas theater to arrest him for skipping the line without paying, and he said aloud, this is it. McVeigh saying what he did at that moment sounds like the same energy to me. That's just my opinion. And normally that person arrested on a non-violent firearm charge would be released with a court date within a day or two, but he isn't. Because the sitting judge has some kind of personal business and this causes McVeigh to remain in jail for a few more days. In that time, Someone from New York tells the FBI they knew a guy that was an anti-government extremist who was mad about Waco. So the FBI looks for that guy and finds out he's already in jail in Oklahoma. Another aspect of the arrest that feels shady is this. This was the largest domestic terrorist attack to take place on American soil up to that date. It was allegedly orchestrated as a political statement against the ATF with very specific reasons and intentions behind it. It took months to organize, plan, and execute. It involved creating a large bomb that was constructed, hidden for weeks, positioned, and detonated perfectly. But almost immediately, the main culprit is pulled over and arrested for something totally unrelated. Driving a car with no license plate and carrying an unregistered pistol. Who could and would perpetrate that kind of complicated crime and then try to make the getaway in a car with a built-in reason for being pulled over? It just doesn't make sense. 
So after the tip and learning that McVeigh had been arrested already, the FBI then transferred him into federal custody and charged him for the bombing of the building. The be on the lookout alert for those two Middle Eastern or Hispanic men was retracted, and the serial number of the Ryder truck axle was traced to a rental agency in Kansas. The listed renter of that specific truck was not Timothy McVeigh, and officials would later say that the truck had been rented by him using a false name. The address given by the renter of that truck had been the Michigan farmhouse of James Nichols. A brother of James Nichols, that is Terry Nichols, was an old army buddy of McVeigh's. Somehow, hearing that he was wanted for questioning in connection with this bombing, Terry Nichols turned himself in to the Harrington, Kansas Police Department, and he was also arrested for the bombing. Michael Fortier, another army buddy of McVeigh's, was also arrested and charged with having advanced knowledge of the plot. So that's the official story of the Oklahoma City bombing as far as what the news told us. A bomb just went off that destroyed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. Many believed killed and many more most certainly injured. The police have issued a bolo for two Middle Eastern men who were seen fleeing the location seconds before the blast. Scratch that, they have in custody a Timothy McVeigh. McVeigh, a loner outcast, collaborated with an old army buddy to build a truck bomb, which McVeigh alone positioned and detonated to blow up a federal building that housed the offices of the ATF as a way to protest the Ruby Ridge and Waco debacles. McVeigh was a militant anti-government racist. Stay tuned. In 1997, two years after his arrest, McVeigh was found guilty of 11 federal counts of murder and conspiracy. He had confessed to the crimes, was sentenced to death, and was executed by lethal injection in 2001. So, who was Timothy McVeigh? McVeigh was born on April 23, 1968 in Pendleton, New York. He joined the Army in 1988 after graduating high school. He rose from private to sergeant in two years, and by 1991, his infantry unit was in the Middle East amid the first Gulf War. He was a sharpshooter and a sniper. He was awarded a Bronze Star for Valor and a Combat Infantry Badge for his combat service. When combat ended, his unit was assigned to provide security for General Schwarzkopf in Saudi Arabia. During that assignment, McVeigh was ordered to return home to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, having applied and been selected to try out for the Green Berets, the Army Special Forces. According to the official record, early in that training, McVeigh wrote a voluntary letter of withdrawal and quit the Special Forces program saying that he was physically unfit to proceed. According to the official characterizations of McVeigh, he had long held aspirations of joining the Army Special Forces, but upon failing to accomplish that goal, became frustrated and unexpectedly quit the Army. The official story is that after quitting the army, he fell in with some anti-government, right-wing extremist, white supremacist militia groups, and the rest is history. But in a letter that McVeigh wrote to his sister in 1993, he said that after taking a battery of intelligence and psychological tests, that one day in formation, out of 400 soldiers, 10 ID numbers were called out, no names, and those men were asked to leave formation and report elsewhere. McVeigh was one of those 10. McVeigh told his sister that he and these other soldiers were asked to volunteer to do special assignments on both domestic and international fronts. 
And it's also worth saying that it is very likely that in that situation, the Army Special Forces are not going to ask anyone who has the slightest chance of saying no. They drill it right down to the people they want. We also know McVeigh told both his friend and accomplice Terry Nichols and his cellmate on death row or the person in the cell next to him that he had been recruited by the Army to go undercover and do intelligence work as an independent contractor and that he had operated as such from the moment he officially left the Army until the bombing when he was abandoned fully by them and left to the machinery of the justice system but he never truly believed that and it seems that he felt that he was still undercover and that they were going to save him all the way up until the moment that they gave him the lethal injection and maybe they did or they didn't, we'll get to that later. It seems that attorney access to documents and interviews with Nichols and McVeigh's cellmate or prison mate that could corroborate these statements have been blocked by federal judges for reasons of national security. McVeigh claimed that he was selected to help fly drugs into the U.S. through the CIA to fund covert operations and to work as a military consultant to civilian police agencies to quiet anyone deemed a security risk and as such act as a government-paid assassin. The New York Times published this letter and dismissed these claims by simply saying, quote, The government has always denied such activities. McVeigh also claimed that he was used as an undercover operative to recruit militia members under the guise of collaborating with them to bomb federal buildings as a way to entrap and arrest militant anti-government activists. He said this was part of what he called Operation PATCON, which we would later find out through FOIA requested documents was a real operation. Also named in PatCon documents is a character named Andreas Straussmeier, who we will get to later, and this whole thing becomes increasingly complex to say the least. Just a quick note with regard to these claims, of the three main assertions made by McVeigh, perhaps the most outlandish sounding one, the claim that he helped fly cocaine into Arkansas for the CIA to sell and fund their black ops, is the one thing we do know absolutely happened. We have no proof of McVeigh's direct involvement there, but the fact that the CIA did this is not in question. So knowing that the CIA did in fact import cocaine into the US to sell so they could raise money to finance their off-the-books operations does make McVeigh's other claims sound quite within the realm of possibility by comparison. He said he was a government-paid assassin and guided to recruit militia members for blowing up federal buildings so they could be framed. Does that sound more outlandish than the known fact that the CIA imported cocaine into the U.S. through Arkansas so they could sell it to our citizens and get cash to fund their black ops? Not at all. So here we come to the first evidence that McVeigh could have been what Colonel Fletcher Prouty calls in his book the secret team, sheep dipped. A very short definition of a sheep dipped military operative is one who officially quits the military on paper in order to do deep intelligence work for clandestine military or intelligence operations. We know that this intricately devised army intelligence mechanism, sheep dipping, was used in the 1960s for Project Heavy Green, 
within the Vietnam conflict. This was a way to circumvent the 1962 Geneva Accords and deploy 48 Air Force personnel into Laos, not as the actual military airmen they were, but as civilian employees of Lockheed. Sheep-dipped military operatives and activities like Project Heavy Green are not conspiracy theories, but historically documented facts. So knowing this, we quickly realize that it puts any research into McVeigh and his activities in a very difficult box. Being sheep-dipped is, by design, a deeply hidden activity, and any records to be found will tell the story of his officially leaving the army for whatever reason his sheep-dipped cover established. When McVeigh was initially pulled over for driving without a license plate, remember that he voluntarily told the officer that he had a gun. When he found out he was going to be arrested, he showed that officer a military ID card that he claimed was his last resort if, while working in his undercover capacity, he was ever to run afoul of local law enforcement or some other operation. So it was, he believed, his get-out-of-jail-free card. But it didn't work. When showing that ID did nothing, it may have been the first time McVeigh realized he was in serious trouble. Recall that McVeigh had claimed at some point in his original detainment and booking by the troopers and or after his transfer to the FBI that he was working as part of PATCON. PATCON was a long-term provocation campaign in which the FBI endeavored to infiltrate and incite American militia groups to commit crimes, including violence, so that the Department of Justice could prosecute those involved. This too, like being sheep-dipped, is no theory. The existence of PATCON was formally disclosed in 2007, when references to the program appeared in documents released through the Freedom of Information Act. So McVeigh claimed to be a part of this group in 1995, 12 years before the program was public knowledge, and he claimed that he was a sheep-dipped military operative on an undercover assignment. And the fundamental function of PATCON was to use undercover intelligence agents to infiltrate, then instigate members of the militia in order to frame and arrest them. And while we don't know everything about the hijinks of PatCon, we do know some relevant things. This next section comes from a very interesting and frankly unnerving website called WYDNA, or W-Y-D-N-A, which has a blank about page, the tagline of world design and analysis, and gigabytes of information about world finance, politics, and military intelligence. Check it out. Maybe through a VPN. This site gives a concise description of what PatCon was, how it came about, and what it did. So from the website, with some paraphrasing, civilian material assistance, and that's a well-known militia, came out of the Iran-Contra era, and the group slowly became increasingly radical. Tom Posey and Roger Moore reconfigured the MA as a survivalist-type group. And no, that is not the Roger Moore who played James Bond. The CMA continued its ties to government and military networks. Basically, what we're seeing there is that this civilian material assistance was a militia that was made up of former Iran-Contra soldiers and that the group slowly became increasingly radical 
but they continued their ties to government and the military, so their connections. Moore was still in contact with the Arkansas FBI agent Tom Ross and likely with North and those around him. FBI documents released by FOIA illustrate that the CMA maintained deep ties to special forces operators. Its membership included personnel from the 20th Special Forces Group. The FBI document goes on to state that the 20th Special Forces Group is the legal mercenary force of the military which operates with Task Force 160, also known as Night Stalker, out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. At the 1990 Soldier of Fortune convention in Las Vegas, the CMA made contact with the Texas Light Infantry Militia, known as the Texas Reserve Militia, a survivalist group with ties to Lewis Beam and the Aryan Nation. The encounter led to a proposed merger between the CMA and the TRM. The strategic alliance was motivated by President George Bush's repeated invocations of a new world order in speeches to describe the post-Soviet world. FBI Telex has reported that the groups were stockpiling money, ammunition, military weapons, supplies, and explosives for a day that they will be needed to fight the U.S. government, which they believe is turning communist as part of a plot under the New World Order. The CMA and TRM established a training camp in rural Texas about an hour outside of Fort Hood. Local police were bribed to look the other way, and inquiries into their activities were met with the claim that this installation was a DEA training base. In 1991, Posey hosted a summit of various militia groups in Birmingham, Alabama, with the goal of, to quote FBI telexes, building interlocking anti-government groups so that the movement could be ready to fight the government attempts to take over the rights of the citizens. Present at the summit were members of the American Pistol and Rifle Association, which was really the same group as the Order of St. John. At the time, this was located in Benton, Tennessee, and ran by John L. Grady. Between 1991 and 1992, all of these groups held discussions and meetings to plan future covert activities, including attacks on microwave, radio, telephone, electric, and TV towers, and nuclear power plants. In 1991, we also saw the initiation of the FBI's PATCON, or Patriot Conspiracy Operation, which targeted these CMA and TRM and OSJ militias and other groups in the survivalist militia underground. PATCON worked by seeding infiltrators into these groups, the creation of fake militia groups, such as the Veterans Aryan Movement, which was a wholly fabricated militia group created by the FBI. They conducted entrapment-based sting operations. Interestingly, Moore himself seems to have had a history with these types of operations. In 1989, Moore appeared in a joint FBI-ATF sting operation called Operation Punch-Out, which saw a series of underground groups arrested for shipping explosives. So that's the end of the WYDNA website information, at least what I'm going to go into. And that's just a tiny glimpse into the complex web that makes up a combination of genuine American patriot militias, undercover federal agent provocateurs, outright fabricated extremist militias created wholly by the FBI as entrapment schemes, and the interconnections of all these groups share with the legitimate military special forces organizations and their soldiers, contractors, and operatives. 
PatCon was overseen directly by Assistant FBI Director Larry Potts, who was also the director for the sieges at both Ruby Ridge and Waco. Also, the same structural engineers who determined, from a few blocks away, in fact, that the Ryder truck bomb had brought down the Murrah building were the exact same people who told us that David Koresh lit the fires that burned down the Waco compound and who gave us the pancake theory of the WTC tower collapses and who told us that the heat from those tower fires caused Building 7 to crumble within its own foundation. Also named in the PatCon docs is Andreas Strassmeyer, as I mentioned before. He pops up a few times and we'll get into those accounts later, so stay tuned. As you can see, this story has many moving parts and we're just getting into it. You could come at it from multiple angles, but at this stage, I want to get into what the survivors tell us. I think these first-hand accounts not only tell us something about the actual bombing and the moments after the explosions, but some of this also gets into the days leading up to it, and those bits of information are also important, as we'll see. First up on the list of blast survivors is Jane Graham. At the moment of the building's destruction, she was blown into the center of a room, and when she landed, she found herself looking up to see the sky. On the Friday before the explosion, Jane Graham and several other employees in the building saw men wearing Federal General Service Administration, or GSA, uniforms, drilling holes into the concrete pillars in the underground parking garage of the Federal Murrah Building, and inserting what she said looked like blocks of clay, then connecting the installations with what she thought was telephone wire. So GSA employees perform routine maintenance on federal buildings. She saw the same men, once again, in their all-blue GSA uniforms at 8.15 on April 19th, approximately 47 minutes before the bombing. They had just exited a stairwell that comes directly from the ninth floor down to the hallway she was in, and they walked, according to her, briskly past her. She then saw, in a news video, in the aftermath of the explosion, these same men walking around the outside of the building on the street amid the chaos and rescue activities. But on this video, these men were no longer in the GSA uniforms, but in street clothes. Also in the building that day was V.Z. Lawton, who worked for the Department of Housing and Urban Development's Native American Authority. Lawton was knocked out by the blast. When he awoke, he stood, looking into his office, and as his eyes adjusted, he realized there was a bright light behind him. He turned around to see that he was four feet from the edge of what was left of his floor, and he was looking out across Oklahoma City, through the now-gone side of the building. He died in 2012 of natural causes, and after the incident had remained active in the Oklahoma City Bombing Investigation Committee in search of the truth. He co-authored the final report, which provided evidence that differed from what the U.S. government had concluded and presented about the explosion. And that language comes directly from his obituary. The ATF had offices in the building. It was the ATF who were the alleged target of the attack, as described by those who cast McVeigh as seeking revenge against the ATF's mishandling of the Waco siege, and mainly that would have been the prosecution. 
However, the ATF agents who worked in the building did not come to work that day for some reason. According to one witness speaking in silhouette on a KFOR news report, he contacted the ATF to ask if they had any information about his wife who had been in the building the morning of the bombing. I guess he was worried about her and trying to find out if anyone knew where she was, that sort of thing. This man persisted when he was told all of the agents who worked in the building were in a meeting that morning. After asking again to speak to someone who had been there, he was told by this person at the ATF that none of the ATF officers were in the Alfred P. Murrah building on that morning of the explosion because all of them had been paged and told not to come into work that day. The ATF did say that two agents had gone to work that day, however. One agent named McCauley said he had been in an elevator when the bomb went off and that the elevator had fallen freely for five stories. When it landed, he escaped and helped others in the building to safety. But there's a problem with that story too. Oscar Johnson, elevator mechanic, was part of the crew called in to assess the conditions and occupancies of the elevators in the building after the blast. His crew arrived even before the firefighters. He testified that the elevator in which ATF agent McCauley had claimed in a grand jury investigation to have free fallen in was actually stuck at the top floor with a fallen wall caving in the elevator doors. In addition to this elevator technician testifying that this particular elevator was actually pinned at the top of the building, he also said that none of the other elevators had experienced a free fall condition that day. In addition to the elevator technician's evidence, that ATF agent McCauley was lying about his self-grandizing heroic story, building maintenance supervisor Dwayne James described McCauley's story as, quote, pure fantasy. Dwayne James examined the elevator in question and also the central control panel and pointed out a number of technical and logical reasons why the miraculous elevator incident simply couldn't have happened in the way that Agent McCauley had claimed. After these rebuttals, McCauley and his story simply vanished from media coverage. The other ATF agent that was officially said to have been in the building said that he was trapped in a room where all exits were destroyed and blocked but that he knew karate, so he karate chopped his way through the walls to escape. And I cannot make this stuff up. Paramedic Tiffany Bible testified that while she was on the scene immediately after the bombing, she asked an ATF agent if any ATF officers were in the building. This ATF officer told her no, none of the agents were in any of the ATF offices, and that the bombing had been a response to Waco. Why would he say that and how would he know? This was before Timothy McVeigh was even arrested. ABC's news show 2020 did a report that told us, among other things, that there was at least some prior official knowledge of a bomb or bomb threat at the Alfred P. Murrah building. They told us that witnesses had seen an Oklahoma City Police Bomb Squad truck at the scene the day before the incident. 2020 also showed documents revealing that someone had called the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. to report that the Alfred P. Murrah building had been bombed 
but this call came in 24 minutes before the explosion. All of this makes a case for prior knowledge at an official level. 2020 was preparing a more in-depth episode on the story, but according to show producers, federal agents prevented them from airing it. News Channel 4 in Oklahoma reported, shortly after the bombing, that Governor Frank Keating's brother, Mark Keating, had been working on a novel long before the events at the federal building explosion about a terrorist bombing in Oklahoma City. One of the characters in the novel was named Thomas McVeigh. This is one of those situations that seems so impossible. As time passed, all of the news reports dropped the many leads and various characters who were connected to the explosion in the early stories, and the mainstream media fell into a single narrative chanting that it was Timothy McVeigh who blew up the building with a truck bomb as revenge for the Waco massacre. But News Channel 4 was the only news station that did not change its initial stories as the days went by, and they continued to report on the missing John Doe's the multiple explosions, and the suspicious activities surrounding the bombing. That station was then bought out by the New York Times, and everyone who had worked on the Oklahoma City bombing story was fired. Don Browning of the Oklahoma City Police said that their department's horse patrol unit, assisted by the county mounted division, was outfitted, saddled, and deployed on the morning of the blast, but well before the explosion, to position themselves downtown for crowd control. Don Browning said that very rarely would the mounted officers be used for crowd control for any event. Another inconsistency concerning witnesses on that day revolves around the official story that McVeigh drove, parked, then detonated the Ryder truck bomb entirely alone. In order to convict a single person for blowing up the building, and to facilitate a tidy wrap-up of the case, McVeigh had to have done the main action by himself, then everyone else could just be people who helped him buy fertilizer and fuses or whatever. But FBI agent Danny Colson, who was in charge of the crime scene that day after the blast, spoke candidly to the BBC in 2007 about the many eyewitnesses who came forward to say otherwise. Colson said, quote, we know there were 24 people that were interviewed by the FBI that said they saw Mr. McVeigh on April 19 with someone else. Colson's statement is corroborated by the FBI's 302 reports, which contain these descriptions of other men with McVeigh, which these witnesses provided to those agents. Now, this is interesting because not only do we know that multiple people saw someone else with McVeigh on the day of the bombing, and that is exactly what a direct accomplice is. And it seems that there's more going on here than the feds just wanting to nail one guy to make the case easier. I mean, nail two guys, just the same. What's the difference, right? But not only did they brush aside the eyewitness testimony of other people with McVeigh on that day, but they actively dismissed what would have been valuable testimony that also would have helped convict McVeigh. The main piece of evidence being that of Mike Morrows, who was interviewed by the FBI numerous times in the week after the bombing. Morrows was a mechanic working at Johnny's Tire, an automotive repair shop located a few blocks from the Murrah building. 
Morrow said that on the morning of the bombing, Timothy McVeigh pulled the Ryder truck into Johnny's tire at about 8.30 a.m. to ask for directions to the Murrah building. Morrow's had spoken to McVeigh face-to-face, and his two co-workers, Alan Gorrell and Byron Marshall, confirmed that they had seen McVeigh as well. But Morose said that McVeigh also had a passenger with him in the Ryder truck. This man came to be known as John Doe No. 2. Morose's account was so significant that the FBI brought him downtown to their command center where he identified McVeigh in a live lineup. Mike Morose would have been a dramatic witness for the prosecution because his testimony would have placed Timothy McVeigh in downtown Oklahoma City asking for directions to the Murrah building while driving the truck with the bomb in it, presumably. But his testimony was left out of the trial. Why? Is it possible that the guy with McVeigh that day was an FBI informant? That would explain why the FBI might not want the world knowing who that guy was if he was there with McVeigh and helped him to park the truck. We know that the FBI had informants infiltrating these militias. One source tells us that sometimes there were more FBI informants in the militia groups than actual militia members themselves. And this is all far from just that good old dangerous conspiracy thinking. FBI documents obtained through FOIA requests tell us that in 2005, Terry Nichols was scheduled to be interviewed by State Representative Dana Rohrabacher, who was at the time chairing a subcommittee tasked with writing a report on terrorism. In a memo dated June 24, 2005, the FBI writes, quote, DTOU, Domestic Terrorism Operations Unit, expressed concern regarding John Doe No. 2's name surfacing during the congressman's interview, end quote. So why would they be worried about the name of someone they call John Doe No. 2 coming out in a House Subcommittee on Terrorism interview with someone convicted in the Oklahoma City bombing if there was never any second person with McVeigh in the first place, as they have repeatedly told us? By the way, the DTOU referenced as being worried about this in the FBI memo is the FBI unit responsible for running informants and sting operations in terrorism cases. Not only that, there are at least 20 video surveillance tapes recorded on the morning prior to this event and showing the explosion itself. Timothy McVeigh's jury was not allowed to see any of that evidence and none of those videos are available to the public on grounds of, say it with me, national security. Correct. One videotape that did slip out was a recording from a McDonald's drive through in Junction City that shows Timothy McVeigh was there within minutes of the time stamped on the Ryder Truck rental agreement, proving that he could not have both rented the truck and gone to that McDonald's, they're 20 minutes apart. So this casts into serious question the conclusion that the fake name on the Ryder Truck rental agreement was really McVeigh, as the prosecution maintained throughout the trial. Many believe it was Terry Nichols who rented the truck under the alias, partly because it was his brother's Michigan address that was used on the form. Another colorful character in all of this is Carol Howe. 
Carol Howe received weekly payments from the government to act as an informant as she infiltrated the white supremacist militia at what we know as Elohim City. Elohim City is a 400-acre private community located in Oklahoma, and in her role as an undercover informant, Carol Howe went so far as to get a swastika tattooed on her arm. She lived in Elohim City for some time and associated with McVeigh often as he lived there off and on. Howe, and her name may be pronounced Ho, I'm not sure, H-O-W-E, I'm going to say Howe, Howe says she informed her agency handlers prior to the bombing on April 19, 1995, that various Elohim City residents were planning an attack on federal buildings, which included the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma. So here we get into the twisted world of undercover informants, fake and real militia members, patriots, government agents, and the many ways they can all become so confusingly interconnected. Howe had been a white supremacist for years, but she claimed in court that it was all just an act for her role as an informant, and she told the ATF that people she knew were planning to bomb the Murrow building, and this was before it happened. One of those people was Andreas Strassmeyer, who we had mentioned before. Strassmeyer was the head of security for the militia operated at Elohim City, where we know McVeigh lived before the bombing. But Strassmeyer was also the son of Gunter Strassmeyer, the chief of staff to German Chancellor Helmut Kohl. Andreas Strassmeyer was in the German army for five years, worked for the British Welsh Guard, then came to the U.S. and with the help of retired Air Force Colonel Vincent Petrusky, was given a job with the federal government, but we don't know exactly what that job was. We do know that Strassmeyer moved to Houston, Texas in 1986, where he started working as a salesman for a computer company. During this time, he became involved with the Texas Light Infantry Militia, which is another militia we know was targeted by PATCON. But Strassmeyer was kicked out of that militia due to speculation from members that he was a government agent. Why did they think that? Because they tailed him one night and watched him enter a federal building by typing in an access code on the door's keypad, which opened the door right up and he went inside. And this is the guy who was head of security at the Elohim City Militia Compound, where, according to Carol Howe, a known ATF informant, McVeigh also lived and where the Oklahoma City bombing was planned. After the building was blown up, Strassmeyer went back to Germany and hasn't been heard from since. I think he was interviewed by the FBI over the telephone or something. So let's go back to those other than McVeigh. In addition to the initial APB put out for two Middle Eastern men in blue jogging suits driving a brown pickup truck, Timothy McVeigh was seen multiple times by multiple witnesses in the weeks leading up to the bombing, and never once was he alone. Upon his transfer to federal custody, APBs were put out for at least two other John Doe's who had been seen with McVeigh several times. A man who gave McVeigh directions while he was driving the Ryder truck reported and described a passenger who was with him to the FBI. Witnesses at the hotel where McVeigh stayed prior to the bombing described a second person who was with him the entire time, and another witness had seen McVeigh around the federal building with two men making calls from a payphone. 
This is back in the days of payphones. And yes, kids, there used to be a thing called a payphone that you would actually put a quarter in and you could call your friend. It's also in the days of a phone call. The FBI says McVeigh rented the truck alone, but the owner of Elliott's body shop, where McVeigh rented the rider truck, says that two men rented the truck. Who are you going to believe? As soon as McVeigh was charged with the bombing, the searches for all of these other suspects and accomplices were withdrawn. Craig Roberts, a 27-year veteran of the Tulsa, Oklahoma Police Department and an investigative journalist, was asked by the FBI in cooperation with his chief of police to follow every lead and clue he could find about the bombing, McVeigh, Terry Nichols, the evidence in the building, and anything else he could think of to help in their investigation into the matter. One of the first people inside the building after the explosion was an Oklahoma City police officer who told Roberts that the most damage to the building had been done at the back of the rubble, in the center of the building, where he discovered a crater that had been blown out and the hollow space extended down two or three stories below ground. Roberts says that information was never part of the DOJ investigation because it did not fit the narrative that Janet Reno had laid out for the case. Janet Reno, you will recall, was also at the helm when the Waco compound was set on fire. Nikki Deutschman, who was the foreperson on the jury in the Terry Nichols trial, said in a TV interview, quote, well, said in a TV interview, quote, actually, you know what, I have this right here, so... Let me just play that clip, and we'll see what she had to say about the others involved in the bombing who were ignored by the investigation led by the FBI. So just give me a second, and we'll play her clip. I think that, that the government perhaps really dropped the ball. I think that there were a large number of sightings right around before the, time, the week before and the days and months after the bombing uh, and sketches of people that were recognizable. Um, in this trial, there even was a photograph of someone who may have been involved with mixing the bomb, with putting the bomb together. Um, and that person, it was a photograph from a newspaper, obviously that person's identity is known. I think there are other people out there, and decisions were probably made very early on that Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols were who they were looking for, and the same sort of resources were not used to try to find out who else might be involved. Once again, that was Nikki Deutschman, the jury foreperson in the Terry Nichols trial, speaking to reporters on camera after that trial. Terry Nichols, who was the man Timothy McVeigh lived with when the Ryder truck was rented, was allegedly the person who helped McVeigh construct the container truck bomb. But there's someone else involved too that could have built that thing, and that gets real sketchy. It's not real, it's just all hearsay. But Nichols was tried in a separate trial, found guilty of being McVeigh's accomplice, and given a life sentence. He was tried in Oklahoma again in 2004 on state murder charges with the prosecution seeking the death penalty, which they felt Nichols had slipped out of in the previous trial. But once again, although he was found guilty, he was spared the death penalty. Michael Fortier, another accomplice, became a witness for the prosecution in both cases and received a 10-year sentence. He was released in 2006 and went immediately into the witness protection program 
I think with his wife. The short trial for McVeigh lasted three weeks. The shorter jury deliberation lasted less than 24 hours and McVeigh was sentenced to death. McVeigh waived all of his appeals. Just before his execution, the FBI announced that they possessed thousands of documents pertaining to the case that had not been provided to prosecutors. This resulted in a month-long stay of execution, but the documents were still kept from evidence and McVeigh was executed on 11 June 2001, making his one of the fastest cases of trial, conviction, and execution ever handed down in U.S. history. With the execution of McVeigh, the life sentence of Terry Nichols, and the time served by Fortier, the government declared the case closed and justice served. Oklahoma State Representative Charles Key made the observation that on the first day of the bombing, a significant amount of information came out immediately surrounding what had caused the explosion, witnesses at the scene, descriptions of suspects, building damages, and things of that nature. But that information changed, in his words, quote, very significantly and drastically as the day went by and the next several days went by. That caused a lot of questions in people's minds about what really happened here. End quote. Dale Phillips of the Oklahoma Bombing Investigation Committee says that immediately after the bombing on the first day, local law enforcement and local media were doing a good job investigating and reporting on the event. But when federal agents, these being ATF and FBI, arrived, there began to be multiple reports of two additional undetonated bombs within the building. The declarations of these two new bombs were used to drive local officials and technicians away from the scene. I found one of those montages where they strained together a bunch of news clips of a wide range of people such as rescue workers, the mayor, a paramedic, different federal agents, random eyewitnesses on the street, um, news people, and every one of them using the same repetitive, specific, but slightly odd phrase. In this case, all of them kept saying that they just found, quote, two additional explosive devices undetonated. Like, yeah, they said they just found two additional explosive devices undetonated. Why are the rescue workers retreating? asked the reporter. Because they said they just found two additional explosive devices undetonated. And this just in, we are getting reports that authorities have just discovered in the rubble of the Alfred P. Murrah building, two additional explosive devices undetonated. Over and over, people on TV coverage, fully unrelated, paramedics, civilian witnesses on the street, news anchors, ALS or law enforcement spokespeople, saying that one specific and systematically awkward phrase, two additional explosive devices undetonated. Over and over, just that alone, do you think it's a coincidence? When you notice those odd phrases and repetition focused on a single idea like that, those are the fingerprints of the deep state. But after rescue workers and journalists were driven away from the scene, Reports of those two additional explosive devices undetonated simply vanished, and the subject was just dropped. You never heard about it again. What happened to those devices? They just stopped talking about them. 
And here we get into some very sketchy territory. In that time, after everyone was driven out and away from the damaged building, survivors still trapped inside, witnesses from distant positions like nearby rooftops saw black SUVs and ununiformed personnel entering the rubble and retrieving hundreds of boxes. We know that the Murrah building housed Clinton documents concerning the Whitewater scandal, and it has been speculated that this potentially incriminating evidence was what was being removed. It is also said that there were thousands of documents from the Waco Branch Davidian mess that were located there, and potentially illegally stored weapons belonging to the ATF offices, and all of this is conspiracy theory fuel for what may have been removed in the hours after the rescue crews and reporters were driven back by the discovery of those supposed two additional explosive devices undetonated that no one ever talked about again after that. Since this is such a deep subject, if you'd like to go into it further, I'd say check out the episodes about the Oklahoma City bombing on the podcasts, Those Conspiracy Guys and Tinfoil Hat. The documentary entitled A Noble Lie is well done and it goes deep too. Sadly, my opinion is that the Netflix documentary on the OKC bombing is hands down pro-federal, big government, anti-militia propaganda that systematically and in a very logical progression builds a case that all anti-big government, liberty-first American patriots are white supremacists. I don't believe that's true, but that is the position that seems to be portrayed in the Netflix documentary. And since we're in this shady territory, let's just dive into a few other things that stand out here. I'm going to have a sip of coffee right now, and I never say that on the podcast because it's such a cliche, but right now it's true. This gets crazy, so take a deep breath and hang on. Soon after the bombing, Oklahoma State Representative Charles Key formed the Oklahoma Bombing Investigation Committee and impaneled a grand jury. They collected evidence of the federal and state government's outright lies and obstruction of justice concerning the Oklahoma City bombing. They thoroughly discredited the official myth of McVeigh as the lone bomber and his truck as the cause of the building collapsing, and they published their final report in 2001. Charles Key was then essentially run out of office by the local media and some other state officials. Attorney Jesse Trentadue, who has an ongoing case mixed up in all this, had a brother, Kenny Trentadue, who was a convicted bank robber. Kenny Trentadue was found beaten, covered in bruises, cut deeply in several places, and hung to death in his cell at the Oklahoma City Federal Transfer Center on August 21 of 1995. His death was ruled a suicide. The man in the cell across from Trentadue's, Alden Baker, reported watching guards enter Trentadue's cell the night before he was found dead and hearing sounds of a prolonged fight. He saw the guards exit the cell with blood on their uniforms. He was scheduled to testify in court, but before the court date, he was also found hanged to death in his cell, ruled a suicide. It is possible that Trentadue was targeted because he was mistaken for Johnny Lee Guthrie, another convicted bank robber and a suspected accomplice of Timothy McVeigh. This Guthrie is one of the John Doe suspects never identified 
Jesse Trentadue, that's the lawyer brother of the guy who committed suicide by beating himself, cutting himself, and hanging himself in such a way that got blood on the prison guards' uniforms, reported that McVeigh passed word to him before he was executed that his brother had been killed because it was thought that he was Guthrie. Apparently, these two guys looked exactly like each other, even both having the same tattoo in the same place. Johnny Lee Guthrie was also found hung to death in his cell the day before he was to appear on a television show. Jesse Trentadue's suit against the federal government continues in court to this day as the Department of Justice refuses to release the report on the death of his brother despite a court order to do so. Trentadue's lawsuit has revealed that federal judge Lois Kimball disclosed that the FBI had an informant close to McVeigh in the days leading up to the bombing. In December of 2006, outgoing U.S. Representative Dana Rohrabacher, chairman of the Oversight and Investigations Committee, issued a report on his investigation of the Oklahoma City bombing, concluding that foreign ties to the bombing were not sufficiently investigated by the FBI in the course of the case. So you can see, there's so much more to this case than anyone who just knows the reported news about McVeigh and the bombing would ever know. In 2007, Terry Nichols, the convicted accomplice of Timothy McVeigh, produced a written declaration from prison given to Jesse Trentadue. In it, Nichols writes, quote, Crucial parts of this terrorist act remain hidden from the American people, especially the identities of the others unknown who collaborated with McVeigh in the bombing. Nichols named Arkansas gun dealer Roger Moore as a government provocateur in the bombing and that the robbery of Roger Moore's collection of firearms and explosives was to provide him a cover as an innocent bystander in the tragedy. Nichols goes beyond that and names Larry Potts, assistant director of the FBI and the man in charge of the bloody fiasco at Ruby Ridge, as having directly assisted McVeigh in the weeks leading up to the explosion. Nichols also writes that McVeigh told him that he had been recruited for undercover work while in the U.S. Army, so there's that whole thing. It could also be said that Nichols has nothing to gain by making these statements, and in fact, a lot to potentially lose, especially considering the fates of some of those in federal custody who find themselves connected to the Oklahoma City bombing. One last person who met with what looks to be foul play and I am including his story here because I feel like it would be disrespectful to his name and to his family to leave it out, is the story of a police officer who was the very first law enforcement officer on the scene after the building collapsed, and that was Oklahoma City Police Officer Terrence Yakey. He rescued at least four people, and from the beginning he insisted that something about the destruction of the building wasn't right. He amassed his own case of evidence, and it is believed that he had videos and photos and documents that would indicate something other than the truck bomb and McVeigh alone was responsible for the building collapse, but we may never know. With plans to meet friends for dinner, he phoned them saying he was running late and would be there as soon as he could shake the feds that were tailing him, in his own words. The next day, he was found in a field over a mile away from his parked car, with cuts on his wrists, arms, and neck, rope burns on his neck, and dead by a gunshot wound from a 9mm that left no powder burns, 
and entered his right temple from behind and above, with the bullet exiting through his opposite cheek. No gun was found when local police arrived on the scene and searched it for evidence, but an FBI agent who arrived later found a gun in an already thoroughly searched area within five minutes of being there. Officer Yeeke's death was ruled a suicide. No suicide note was found, and his body was cremated before the family had a chance to view it. In a letter dated May 1st, 2006, to Oklahoma City Police Department Chief William City, from retired Tulsa Police Department investigator W. Craig Roberts, Roberts writes, quote, Though it was originally written up as a suicide, I feel the evidence and facts point to a torture homicide. I will explain why I feel this way and why I would like you to reopen the case and examine it further. I know that your homicide investigators may have many current cases to work, but this victim is one of your officers, and I know that in the Tulsa Police Department, we would not rest until we got to the bottom of an officer's death and put all questions to rest. My summary. This is a case that shares many similarities to other lone nut assassin conspiracies. It suffers from a symptom that plagues many valid cultural observers and deep conspiracy theory researchers, which is the idea of a black and white answer. Either the accused and convicted did it on their own, or the government did it. One or the other of these may or may not be the case. Timothy McVeigh, like Lee Harvey Oswald, was pretty cavalier after the fact if he did in fact plan, fabricate, orchestrate, and blow up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building on his own. Lee Harvey Oswald shoots the president, then walks to go see a movie that's already started, goes in without buying a ticket and gets the cops called on him for it, and McVeigh blows up a federal building that took months of planning and execution, then proceeds to drive erratically in a junker car with no license plate while carrying an unregistered gun until he gets pulled over. Upon being arrested, he tells the cops, his lawyer, and a cellmate that he's a sheep-dipped undercover military operative who is part of PATCON, which no one knew about then, but we now know was an FBI operation designed to entrap militia members. Maybe McVeigh thought he was setting up the members of the militias he had infiltrated and that he was helping to blow up a truck bomb that he knew would cause a ruckus and a superficial damage at the street level. He had fled the area by the time the bomb went off. It's possible that he had no idea the building would be blown in half. Very possible. He heard about it on the radio as he was driving. He hands the trooper some kind of military intelligence ID when he's pulled over, and the trooper basically tells him, tell it to the judge. When that ID did nothing to help him, that was very likely the first time McVeigh may have started to worry. Some prearranged get-out-of-jail-free card that's suddenly worthless. Something his handlers told him turning out to be a lie. The first realization that he may be the patsy. Like Lee Harvey Oswald going to the theater, perhaps to meet some prearranged contact, then seeing 30 policemen walk in. All of this points to an operation much bigger than McVeigh and the Ryder truck bomb. McVeigh claimed from the beginning that he was working as an undercover military asset. He said his handler was a man called The Major, but he never mentions him by name. McVeigh stated he was recruited while in the army by the Major 
and was sheep-dipped to infiltrate Patriot militia groups. His unit was attached to the Defense Department. According to the Major, as told to us by McVeigh, the unit was so secret that even the U.S. Secretary of Defense was unaware of its existence. According to McVeigh, the Major further explained that the agenda for his secret unit was primarily domestic intelligence gathering and internal threat evaluations with an emphasis on direct counteraction operations. Funding and support for the operations would be provided through sources unconnected to the U.S. government. McVeigh was to familiarize himself with the rhetoric of extreme right-wing ideology and create the plausible aura of a disgruntled soldier. We also know from court documents that McVeigh met with notorious CIA mind control expert and hypnotist Dr. Joylon West, who headed the MK Ultra program and was also the doctor who attended Jack Ruby, Patty Hearst, and Sirhan Sirhan, who allegedly shot Bobby Kennedy. Check out Renegade Files episode 15, The Bobby Kennedy Assassination, to learn more about this nefarious character. McVeigh goes to trial, and he can't give them any detailed information about the bomb materials, design, construction, where the materials were purchased and stored, the positioning of the truck and why that building was chosen. All of that was provided by Michael Fortier, who says the information was given to him by McVeigh. And Fortier then enters into a plea deal, which helps convict McVeigh. Then he gets a few years in jail, and is released into the witness protection program and vanishes. Handy. Witnesses saw two Hispanic or Middle Eastern looking men casing the scene in a brown truck and running from the building minutes before the blast and driving off in that brown truck. Witnesses saw McVeigh with another guy in the rider truck. They saw men wiring what looked like putty with electrical wires into the building's main supporting columns in the days before the explosion. All of the ATF agents who worked in the building were notified to not come into work that day. A policeman with a storage unit full of files and videotapes and photos from the aftermath drives into the country and is found a mile from his blood-soaked car, his throat cut, and shot in the head from above and from far enough away as to leave no powder burns. This happening minutes after he spoke on the phone to his friend saying he'll meet him for dinner as soon as he can shake the feds that are following him. His death is then ruled a suicide. According to trial documents provided by the prosecution, Timothy McVeigh used an ammonium nitrate and fuel oil bomb, also called an ANFO bomb, to destroy the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. But, according to the Department of the Army and Air Force Technical Manual Number 9-1910, entitled Military Explosives, an ANFO explosion requires a greater than 99% purity of ammonium nitrate, as well as specific dryness, before it can be mixed with diesel fuel to create an explosive substance. The manual also explains that the construction of such an explosive compound has to be conducted under such ideal environmental conditions, so exceedingly precise that they are seldom accomplished even by experts. The FBI and prosecution in the McVeigh trial claimed that the Ryder truck bomb was made from 50 bags of fertilizer, 
ammonium nitrate fertilizers come in much weaker concentrations than the greater than 99% purity required for explosives. You've probably bought fertilizer before and how do they come? 666, that's 6%, 6%, and 6%. Or 10, 10, 10. You never see fertilizer that's 99% of anything. If it's 99% of anything, it's mostly clay and filler. Deriving concentrated amounts of ammonium nitrate from fertilizer, especially 99% pure ammonium nitrate or higher, is a very complex procedure and would require many bags of fertilizer. In short, according to the government's own textbook, the Oklahoma City bomb would have required far more fertilizer than the amounts they say were used and a far advanced, technically proficient set of procedures in a highly controlled environment to even produce a functioning ANFO bomb. Another oddity is the claim by both the FBI and the Oklahoma City Police that the Ryder truck was identified as the one McVeigh had rented by matching a VIN number of the axle that was found. According to police, the axle was found in the bomb crater, and according to the FBI, it was found three blocks away, and whichever it was, rider officials say that VIN numbers are printed on truck axles, and any mechanic or bodywork person could tell you that. The axles have part numbers on them, but that's the same part number for every truck that has that same axle, so the axle doesn't link McVeigh to anything. If he even was the one who rented the truck, because he didn't put his name on it, it was someone else's name, a fake name. FBI informant and star witness Michael Fortier, who admitted to trading his testimony for lenient sentencing on gun charges himself, claimed that he and Timothy McVeigh scouted out the Murrah building several weeks in advance and when doing so located the positions of the ATF offices. If that's true, why did Timothy McVeigh have to ask for directions to the building that morning? Maybe he forgot. But why then did he park the truck on the side of the building the farthest away from the ATF offices? There was an empty parking lot on the other side which would have put the truck directly under those ATF offices. The director of the University of Oklahoma's Geological Survey, Dr. Charles Mankin, said that according to two different seismographic recordings, there were two blasts at the time of the Murrah building bombing. The second explosion came approximately eight seconds after the first and was much stronger. Retired Air Force Brigadier General Benton K. Parton, former commander of the Air Force Armament Technology Laboratory, a 25-year expert in the design and development of explosives, urged senators and congressmen to delay the destruction of the Murrah building site. Parton stated in a news release, quote, When I first saw the picture of the truck bomb's asymmetrical damage to the federal building in Oklahoma, my immediate reaction was that the pattern of damage would have been technically impossible without supplementary demolition charges at some of the reinforced concrete bases inside the building, a standard demolition technique. Reinforced concrete targets in large buildings are hard targets to blast. I know of no way possible to reduce the apparent building damage 
through simply a truck bomb effort. End quote. And that's Air Force Brigadier General Benton K. Panton, former commander of the Air Force Armament Technology Laboratory, with 25 years of experience in design and developing explosives. General Parton's request to have the bomb site preserved in order to examine the possibility of a second explosion was ignored by the federal government, and in fact, when the request was made by him, the government moved up the demolition by two weeks. There have been repeated studies done by a variety of accredited explosive experts and professional demolition contractors, such as former FBI agent Ted Gunderson. All of these have stated that, in their professional opinion, the destruction of the Murrah building could only have been accomplished by top-tier military explosives, detonators, and the strategic positioning of multiple charges. McVeigh's defense attorney, Stephen Jones, stated that there were six to eight core individuals involved in the plot. There's also an entire thread involving witnesses to McVeigh's execution who say they never saw him stop breathing. And we also have the filmmaker Bill Bean, who was filming with permission at the Camp Grafton military facility in North Dakota. This video footage clearly shows Timothy McVeigh at a U.S. military base that specializes in explosives and demolition training, and it was filmed on August 3, 1993, over a year after McVeigh supposedly left the Army. Bean was filming a crew removing items from a row of tanks, and one of those soldiers spoke briefly to Bean, seemed surprised to see the camera, and was quick to leave the filmmaker behind. But that individual that he filmed has now been positively identified through both the video evidence and a voice analysis to be Timothy McVeigh. I know this has been a lot of information, and thank you for going into all of it with me here. I'll wrap this up with a quote from Timothy McVeigh from Paul Hammer's book, where McVeigh said, quote, I was never trying to escape capture. My arrest was all part of the mission. The bombing had to land squarely at the feet of someone involved in the anti-government movement. I left a paper trail that even a blind man could follow. There's a lot there. And that story weaves its way through several other events, both before and after it. Diving into it leaves us with more questions. But I believe this is an important subject to explore. So thanks for doing it with me. You can get more Renegade Files content by becoming an RFA agent at patreon.com slash renegadefiles. Check it out for free for a whole week. Patrons help me make the show without ads for everyone. So thanks to you if you're an RFA agent already. Cheers. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, legend child.